Hey, fellow parents of only children, we have some good news. We're doing a book giveaway to celebrate 10 episodes down of the show. Simply share our show on any of your social media and email us a screenshot, and we'll send the first 10 folks who do so a copy of the classic book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Our email is popperneckpodcasts at gmail.com, P-O-P-E-R-N-A-C-K podcasts at gmail.com, and that's also in the show notes. Popperneck Podcast. Just give me a second to cue it up. Thank you, but this isn't about me. Like, how'd you dress before you were married? I'm not married, sorry. Oh, for some reason I thought you had, like, three kids. Nope. Never married. No kids. Because sometimes you have, like, food stains on your shirt and stuff. I just assumed that it was kids. You know what? Forget I mentioned it. You look great. Some of us have the food stains on our shirts with only, quote unquote, one kid. And some of us might have had some food stains and messiness going on before parenthood. I'm just saying. I'm raising my hand here. And the thing is, we can be so hard on ourselves and compare ourselves to parents of multiple children. Asking, why does she or he look so calm, carefree, and put together? After all, I have only, quote-unquote, one child to take care of. Facebook group member Rachel had some thoughts on that, which I'm sharing with her permission. She writes, and let me just find that. Okay, Rachel wrote, Personally, I think that question of why can't I handle more brings up a lot of feelings that in society, having one child is somehow seen as easier than having multiple children. I see a lot of moms on social media with four plus kids, and they seem to have it all and have it all together, too, when in reality, having one can at times be just as hard or harder, and it really depends on the personality of the parents and the solo kiddo. She says, I'm surprised some days on how little I get done, especially while self-quarantining for six plus months. But my four-year-old kiddo requires a lot of attention for schooling and companionship, and I'm an introvert, through and through. I shut down after bedtime and don't want to do much of anything except curl up with a book or veg on some TV. She also doesn't have anyone at home to play with, so it's mostly me. Sometimes my husband and sometimes her dolls. Meaning that if she had a sibling, they might play together and I could get some more me time and just get some household chores done, let alone my actual paying job. It's tough, but there's also no sibling rivalry and loudness like some households have. In general, our household is pretty calm, and I wouldn't change my lack of productivity in the evening for our close relationship. So thank you again, Rachel, for that comment. And so this reminded me of what happened the other day. I was on a play date and um, I mean, my, my child was on a play date with another family. And so my friend has three boys and the two oldest boys always play together. They are seven and nine years old. And then she has a three year old. And so she was telling me, <laughs> can you hear my daughter laughing? Um, she was telling me that when they were little, the seven and nine year old who um, are seven and nine year old now were always playing together and that they rarely asked her to play with them, if you can imagine that. So those of us who have younger children who are always being asked, play with me, play with me, play with me, uh, we can barely 
relate to what would happen if our child always had a playmate. And now the youngest brother, who is three years old, is often asking his parents to play with him just because of the nature of the age gap. And so she feels like she has some more empathy for parenting with uh, an only child and how hard that can sometimes be, you know, being the constant playmate, especially now in COVID when playdate options and socialization may be more limited. So that section of the episode was all about how, as Rachel said, when there is another playmate for your child, the pressure off of the parents or guardian being the constant playmate is reduced. And I think we all are aware of that, but sometimes we forget and sometimes we can be really hard on ourselves. So let's just take a moment to remember that we are trying to be as attuned and uh, competent parents as we possibly can be. I mean, y'all are the type of people who actually listen to parenting podcasts. Obviously, you're thoughtful. Obviously, you're intentional. With all genuine respect, not trying to sound patronizing, pat yourself on the back because even under the best of circumstances, being the constant playmate can be hard. We have a whole episode coming up on how to set boundaries, how to encourage independent play. We don't have time to go into all of that here, but a lot of us, I think, put so much pressure on ourselves to play with our kids all the time. And as wonderful as that can be, everything in balance, right? Everything in moderation. It's good for kids to be bored sometimes. It's good for kids to make their own fun. I think that is a gift, as I've said in other episodes, of being an only child. So we, de- we needn't pressure ourselves all the time. But yeah, it probably would be easier if our child had a playmate, especially those of you who are working in parenting, y'all know, you know, I don't even have to tell you. So we are moving on, though, into just a few of the societal factors that could make it hard. Um, And so I'm not really sure how to say this, but I'm reminded of a story I heard about a village in Kenya. Now, there were women in, I think, rural western Kenya, I believe it was the the Rift Valley, if I'm not mistaken, who were living in a village. And just like many cultures around the world, when uh, a mother gives birth, there is basically a whole coming together of community, especially the woman in the community, to support and uplift the woman throughout the pregnancy, to celebrate the birth. I've heard in places like Philippines and parts of Peru and some traditional societies, even, you know, weeks or months of pampering and stepping in and being available to hold the baby, take care of the baby, to cook for the mother, just recognizing that the mother has done something momentous and that this took great effort and and I think, I think this should apply if you adopted as well, right? You began to care for another life. And so there is an acknowledgement, there's a celebration, and there's, importantly, practical support so that you're not alone. So you have mentorship. So you literally have a village, like the African proverb says, it takes a village to raise a child. Now, as you know, in many of our Western societies, we, we do not have that. A lot of birth and parenting is viewed as purely utilitarian. And so we lose a lot of that rite of passage. We lose a lot of that support. We lose the practical support. And many of us don't even live near family. And there are few roles in society that are as picked apart as 
demanding and yet somehow undervalued than parenting. I have friends who are child-free and they might disagree. From their perspective, they might be thinking everything seems to be about parenting. Uh, Where I sit, it seems like it's not really valued to be a mother or father. It's just something you fit in when you're not working and it's not it's not just considered important. And so what does that do to us as we're trying to parent? Lacking those practical supports, that mentor, mentorship, that emotional support, that village. Imagine until recently, sometimes we forget, until very recently, like Industrial Revolution or even into the 50s and 60s, families lived near each other in village-like settings and folks could just go next door or perhaps there are multiple generations in the same household and you always had someone to help and kids could run from house to house and just be part of a community we don't have that a lot of us like where i currently live i live in the suburbs of dc a lot of neighbors don't know each other they're just kind of in their own zone and a lot of us do live in the sorts of communities where that is the case maybe that's not you but I think a a lot of us do, and so that's hard. That is very hard. And getting back to those women in Kenya, when they heard about how Western women, I think in this case they were told how American women give birth, uh, give birth with strangers in a very sort of industrial kind of hospital setting a lot of the times, I really appreciate uh, healthcare professionals, but I'm just saying the nature in which we, many of us, give birth and what happens after in terms of being almost entirely alone, either expected to go right back to work, basically, or, um, or sorry, I lost my train of thought, our partner, uh, if we have one, going to work and being alone, just alone. Who's going to be there for us? Um, if I seem less coherent as this episode goes on, it's because there was a lot of background noise. I don't know if you could hear it, but just the bedtime routine is in full swing. But that being said, um, I forget if I just said this because I'm recording this piecemeal, but the woman in Kenya cried, okay? They, they wept for us. And I think we need to realize that there has been a great loss in social support that has come with the changes that have occurred in society for better or for worse and many of us are alone and it is very unnatural as mammals and as human beings designed for community and so it's very normal that some of us are struggling to greater or lesser degrees and i think we should be kind to ourselves and to each other and not expect us to be bionic when we're only human i also know that a lot of folks in our community have survived birth trauma and we're not going to go into that at this point we will in a future episode but that is yet another reason why we're just not in a place where we can go through that again and that is very understandable and sometimes we should all over ourselves don't we for whatever the reason should 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 I should look more put together I should be ready for another kid I should be able to perform better I just wish we could stop shooting all over ourselves and I'm not sure what it will take to make that happen. Hopefully you're not someone who struggles with this, but I know sometimes I do. And I think that this show and this episode in particular is designed to be sort of a pep talk you can come back to, to be like, hey, against the odds in a pandemic, in a very 
bizarre and isolating society with an incredible amount of demands, I am keeping another human being alive and I am doing it with as much love and responsibility as I can muster. And you know what? Sometimes good enough is good enough. And sometimes we just need to be like, this is enough. This is enough. Okay. I'm through picking myself apart right now. This is enough. Okay. So we have talked about the demands of being there for one child who doesn't have a playmate. We have talked about the isolation that comes with giving birth or and or being postpartum or newly adopting in the Western countries in particular and how difficult and unnatural that that is. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to mental health. This will, just a disclaimer, it will not be a comprehensive analysis of mental health. Something just fell. Um, I don't have it in me. It's late. This episode, I, I don't want it to be too long, but I just want to make sure that anyone in this situation feels seen and validated. And the situation is that of the many, many, many of us who live with clinical depression, anxiety, and and conditions which impact our executive function, which I will go into in a minute. So I didn't realize, because I have lived with anxiety for most of my life, that there are people who literally think you should just be able to calm yourself down and talk yourself out of it. I never realized that until I was at a mother's group uh, before the pandemic and someone who uh, was diagnosed with anxiety as an adult didn't struggle with it until there was some sort of a trigger, a major life change that triggered it. And so she she just never realized how physical it is, how debilitating it can be. The hypervigilance. Parenting already requires hypervigilance, always kind of looking all around, looking over your shoulder, looking for your child for any hazards or whatever. Even someone who, if you had seen me at the playground today, I look cool as a cucumber. I don't know if I look cool, but I look calm, you know, because I don't know. I trust my kid's judgment. I don't sweat the small stuff. I don't have the energy to worry if she's eating something that fell on the ground. You know, build her immunity. Fine. I'm just, I, I come across as very low-key and chill, and I, I really am. That's not fake. But there are many of us who also have a private battle with anxiety, and living with that degree of vigilance can be so exhausting, and I really don't think anyone can understand unless they have gone through that. And along with that, I mean, I could go on and on about anxiety, the difficulty making decisions, the overanalysis and overthinking, the, the, the catastrophizing, and by that I mean, you know, envisioning the worst case scenario and preparing for it and battling maybe intrusive thoughts if you are a trauma survivor. Th- these are very valid private battles, and just because they are invisible does not mean that they aren't real or major. And I I just think that needs to be spoken of more. I know there are some families, some cultures, some religions where anxiety is, in my opinion, over-spiritualized. And I say this as a person of faith. I'll go into that later. But we sometimes we, we forget that cortisol is a chemical in the body. Sometimes we forget that our neurotransmitters and our brain patterns are formed in part by our life experiences. And it is not always a matter of will. Everyone is doing their best. It's not a matter of will, like a decision. Oh, I'm just going to be calm now. Oh, I'm just going to be how you want me to be. No, I think that a person who lives with anxiety, it's not an excuse 
but it is an explanation for some genuine difficulty. And I know that many people in our community, mental health is a factor in why they are limiting their family size. And I think that is a really strong decision, especially if it impacts uh, one's health, um, the family dynamic, the the benefit and health of the child and or partner. You know, sometimes that is the most responsible and strong thing to do, whether or not the people in your life necessarily understand. 